Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Notice the, uh, the new setup up here. It's not uh, a design for aesthetic reasons. It's because of the fact that I tested a hypothesis this week. And here's the hypothesis that I tested. It's an old saying, lift with your knees, not with your back. Don't know if you're familiar with that. But I wanted to see if it was true. And so my thought was, why not test it with a piano? So uh, we had to move a piano this week to uh, get, um, make some room for some carpet that's going in the house. And uh, one little pull and one little pop, and then, uh, I can't move. So that happened earlier this week. Every day it's been better, but standing for long periods of time has a tendency to hurt. So uh, it could mean a shorter sermon, so maybe we remove the stool and get out of here in 10 minutes. But, but uh, the stool just helps so we can jump into it. And, uh, but today is the best day I have felt. So this is good. I woke up and there wasn't a whole lot of pain and just a little bit of stiffness. So every day God's hand has been good there. But, uh, but that's why the new setup, it allows me to kind of sit. So, But uh, we're going to begin here. I want you to open your Bibles to Acts 19. We are looking at Acts 19 this morning. Pressing on, I wanted to slow down in 19 a little bit because uh, we're going to speed up as we move on here in these next few weeks. But, um, but Acts 19 in the ministry in, in Ephesians in the, or in Ephesus is a very uh, important chapter. In fact, just in terms of understanding your Bible, it's helpful to know this story. A large portion of the Bible is committed to Ephesus. I want you to think about this. Um, we have this ministry, it's really developed out in this chapter here, in chapter 19. And then most of the words of the New Testament, or most of the writing of the New Testament, is actually derived towards the Ephesians, Ephesian church. Okay, so you have Paul's ministry here. You have a letter he wrote, we have in our New Testament, Ephesians. Timothy was left in Ephesus to establish that church, and so we have two more books, First and Second Timothy, written to the pastor there in uh, in Ephesus. And then the Apostle John spent some time in Ephesus. And then he wrote three letters to Ephesus, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So you've got three more books committed. And of course, Ephesus is one of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. So this, there's a lot of time devoted to Ephesus. Of all the different cities, all the different ministries that have happened, all the different things that took place in the New Testament, God kind of spent a lot of time giving us a lot of information to, and a lot of writing to people in the city. And I think one of the unique things that, that Ephesus brings to the table is it's a very wide uh, uh, religious uh, place. On the one hand, you had animism, you had um, spiritism, you had pantheism, you also had religious fundamentalism and a very conservative group there among the Jews. You had even kind of a, a liberal sect of Judaism there. It pretty much covered the gamut of everything every kind of religious expression in life. And, uh, and in many ways, it speaks to every culture and every generation. And, and so God spends a lot of time unfolding it because I think it's a, a place that, that can minister beyond that moment. We've all benefited from the ministry in, in, in Ephesus. We've benefited from reading the book of Ephesians and First and Second, Third John. We've benefited from looking at First and Second Timothy. We've been challenged by 
Christ's warning to the church in Ephesus by saying, don't, you've lost your first love. You've lost that love. There are a lot of benefits there. So, so this is why it's good to kind of slow down and look at the ministry there. It helps us unlock so much writing of the New Testament. So we're looking today in Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 23 through 41. And we're going to see the result of what happened. Last time we looked, we saw a big a revival take place in Ephesus. Pretty amazing revival. And now we're going to see the impact of that revival. And this impact is going to be pretty amazing. Uh, because the, the impact of this revival is that it actually had a threat upon the culture. It actually it, it threatened the culture. The people there felt threatened by the presence of the gospel. And we're going to see this today. And it's a pretty amazing thing. And, uh, and, and as we walk through this account, I think it's going to challenge you in many ways. But before we kind of jump into the account, let me just set the table a little bit more about the city of Ephesus. We've talked about it in times past, but there's a few more things you should know about this city because it, it's so amazing. One thing you need to understand is that this entire city was, was centered around the temple to Artemis. Sometimes in English it's referred to the temple of Diana, same name, same person, same God person, <laughs> same made-up God. And, uh, and, and, and this temple is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's a drawing, in fact, it'll be on the screen here behind me. There's a, this is an artist's rendering based upon the, uh, some of the uh, understanding of the temple from pictures that were drawn of that age. It was a magnificent structure. You can see how, how high it was. It was sitting on top of this hill. People would come from all over the world to look at this temple, to come and worship here. It was a, a worldwide phenomena. It was major. It, 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 was, it was the shrine that people would take pilgrimages from all over the world. Not only would they take pilgrimage, people would come and bring gifts to this area. And as archaeologists have dug around this area, they have found gifts from Persia and India, and I mean, even gifts from Africa. People had come and, and brought offerings to this temple, and it was a huge, huge, huge part of their life. It was the center of their religious worship. It was a center of their commerce. They made millions and millions of dollars off this temple. It was the center of their worldview. It was the center of their philosophy. It was everything. Now, they believed that, it, actually, this temple was built around what people now today believe was a meteorite that, that, that crashed through the earth and landed there in Ephesus, that, that, because there was this weird rock formation that people now, the archaeologists have said, that actually, it was a meteor that had hit the earth there. And when it hit the earth, they developed a, a belief that that was a, 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 a goddess that was throwing an image of herself down to the earth. And they actually took the image of this meteorite, and that's what the, the image of the goddess was. I'm not going to show you the picture because it's disgusting. Okay? And, and, and they developed this really disgusting image based upon the rock formation that, of this meteor that crashed in. And, uh, and so they believed that this was a sacred place, and it was their job to protect... Uh, the image of Artemis. And it was their job to, to protect the worship of this goddess. They believed so much that if, if they didn't protect this image, that they would be killed. Like there, there's this fear in there. Um, they, they had in their ancient writings, they talk about 
Artemis telling the earth that if, if you uh, shame her, she will curse you. And that was the essence of, of what they believed. And so the people in Ephesus, they, they, this, this was a, a sense of, of worship for them. It was a sense of industry. It was a sense of business. It was a sense of fear. It was a sense of religious devotion. All of this is wrapped around the worship of this goddess Artemis. You need to know this because, because Paul is now going into this city and he is telling them Artemis isn't God. And you must abandon the worship of Artemis to live for Jesus exclusively. And what happens? A revival. People start abandoning the worship of Artemis. They start burning all their books of spells and potions and a revival is breaking out. It's amazing. So, Here's what we're going to see today, two things. We're going to see, in your outline, you see it, I have it, the cash and the chaos. The reason why I'm calling it the cash is because the, the message of the gospel actually attacks the idols of the age. In this case, an element of their idol was they, they, they derived income from the worship of this idol. And so God, he does challenge our idols. And here's the reality. When God challenges our idols, it creates chaos for those who don't believe because they don't like it. No one wants to have their idol challenged. No one wants to have challenged what they live for, what they believe in. You know, an idol is basically defined this thing, this way. Anything in this world that, that, that becomes the ultimate reality of your life, what you live for. If it's peace, if it's comfort, if it's Artemis, if it's money, whatever it is, if you live for it, if you say, I can't live my life without this, then that's an idol. And the gospel comes in and says, the only thing that you should say I can't live without is Jesus. That's it. If anything else is in that place, it's wrong. Wrong. No matter how good it is, it's wrong. That's what Paul preaches. And now we're going to see a response. We saw a great response last time, repentance. Now we're going to see another response, resistance. So let's look here. Let's look at the first point here, the cash. God challenges our idols. Look at verse 23. Now about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, right? Kind of a gentle way of saying every a disturbance. People were getting angry at the church. Remember, the, the title of the church in that day wasn't church. It was the way. Why? Because they went everywhere they went. They kept saying Jesus is the way. He's the only way. He's the only way to everything. And so now these people are getting angry. Right? We looked at it last time. There was $5 million worth of books that were burned. I mean, of all the spells and the religious potions and stuff. A disturbance is growing, and so now people are beginning to get angry. Why? Because the gospel is doing something. And, and, and this is the key you have to understand. The preaching of the gospel isn't just bringing Jesus to a culture. It's, it's bringing Jesus and identifying the areas where people are worshiping something other than Jesus. It's identifying the idols and saying those are wrong and what should be in that place is Jesus. If you are saying, hey, I live for the almighty dollar, I live for money, I live for my career, this is what I do, I sacrifice my family for it, I sacrifice everything for it, everything I do is so that I can, I can have a better life for me and my children and that's what I live for, then that's an idol. And the gospel would come in and say, don't live for that. Live for Jesus. Let him be your provider. He's your provider anyways. Doesn't really matter. 
It's an idol, right? You go in, you address that thing you're living for. Okay? So, Paul has done that. Now, notice what happens in verse 24. A businessman jumps up. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, so this guy is a silversmith. They sold these idols. In fact, these little silver idols uh, are written about everywhere. But you know what? The archaeologists have never been able to find one of them. And the reason why is there's all these records of how people have burned them down and sold off the silver. But, but buying these silver idols was huge, huge business. It was bigger than this guy could do, so he ended up getting people. He was outsourcing his business to them. That's what verse 24 is saying. He's got an idol business, selling idols, and he's got more business than he's got industry to make. And so he gets all these other silversmiths and said, guys, I got business for you, man. We can sell these things like crazy. So he gathers the guys he works with, and he says, hey, he wants to talk to them. Look what he says in verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now that's the key right here. This is the key to understanding this story. It's pretty amazing. They understood, because Paul was very clear. Paul would come in and announce there is one God, one Lord, one Master, one way. And anything else you're living for other than that, is not the way. He had a twofold message. Challenge the idols and insert the glory of Christ in it. Everyone heard that message. One of the unique things about teaching and preaching the gospel that we have to remember as Christians is that it's not just stating the name of Jesus. It's also identifying the idols within the people that we're talking to. This was Paul's mission. You can see this in all of Paul's writings. Right? When he's writing to the, to the Colossians, what does he talk about? Philosophy, vain philosophy, ideas, lofty ideas that, that are taking the place of the glory of Christ. And he says, don't do that. Christ is preeminent. When he's talking to the Galatians, what does he say? You think the law is going to save you? you can't, the law is not going to save you. It's an idol. You're holding on to this circumcision and these adherences to the law. You can't be saved with that. It's Christ. He's talking to the Colossians. He says, you know what, guys? You have so valued your, your doctrine and you have so valued your, your gifts, and you've set aside love, and you've idolized these things to such a degree that you've lost the very heart of the gospel, which is God loves the world. He loves his church. And without love, you're nothing. He's identifying an idol of giftedness and, 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 and academic achievement. And he says, that's an idol, guys. See, everywhere Paul is going, he identifies the idol and says, you can't hold on to that. You've got to hold on to Christ. It's how he works. It's his message. This guy gets it, right? Everywhere, you know, what does he tell the craftsman? Everywhere he goes, he's telling people the gods aren't gods. Gods aren't gods. This is what the mission is, right? This is what it is, identifying the idols. And so notice what he says in verse 27. And there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even 
deposed from her magnificent Shem who all Asia and the world worship. There's three little idols. There's three idols in this that he's that that that, that kind of surface if you really look at this text. Right? There's a personal idol he references, a religious idol, and a cultural idol. All in this passage. Look at this here. Here's the personal idol. There's a danger that this trade of ours may come to disrepute. We will lose business. The preaching of the gospel means we could lose our money. Oftentimes, people who, who, who look at idol worship say, you know, idol worship isn't just the worship of a, of a rock or a stone. That's an expression of it. But there's a personal expression, something you live for. In this case, it's cash for these guys. They're going to lose their business. It could be something else in your life. There's this personal idol. And he says, listen, we're going to lose our money. And then there's a religious idol. He says, and, and Artemis may be counted as nothing. This whole thing that we have set up that we think is true will be proven to be false. It'll fall apart. Right now, religiously, this thing we're living for is going away. And then there's a cultural idol. The cultural idol. What's the cultural idol? And the whole world, right? Our, our status in the world is this temple, and the whole world will, will no longer think of Artemis as being magnificent. We'll lose our place in this world. There's a cultural idol. I, every culture has things that they live for, things they want to be identified by other than God. In this case, it was Artemis. He's saying this is a danger, challenging our money, challenging our religion, challenging our status in the world. And we live for money. We live for this religion. We live for our status. This is what we live for. These are our idols. But Paul came in and said, no, you can't do that. That's wrong. That is not true. So he gathers these men. Notice what happens in 28. Pretty amazing. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? He's saying this is threatening everything. And so what are they going to do? They're going to start screaming and give praise to Artemis. Later, we're going to find out why they're doing this. They're doing this, and I'll tell you now, but you will see it in the text in a little bit. They're doing this because they believe they're keepers of the temple. They've got to protect this worship. And so they begin to offer this praise, and they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is an amazing moment. They're crying out their allegiance. Notice 29, what happens. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into a theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. Okay, you got to catch what's going on here. This starts with the tradesmen. So this guy gathers tradesmen. He tells them, Paul is a threat to our money. Paul is a threat to our religion. Paul is a threat to our cultural standing, this message he's preaching. So they begin to scream, great as Artemis. I don't know how many tradesmen there were, but it's, of course, getting the attention of the town. And so now the town is running out, but they don't know why people are screaming, great as Artemis. It's now just turning into a mob, right? you got five people chanting. All of a sudden, 100 people are chanting. They don't know why. So now the town is filled with confusion. They rush into the theater. There's some question as to how many people the theater held. Some archaeologists say 20,000. Some archaeologists say 50,000. Bottom line is, it's a lot of people, right? you got tens of thousands of people now that have gathered. And they grab two guys that they knew who were with Paul, two guys from Macedonia, and they drag them into the theater. The irony is, no one really knows what's going on. It's just mob rule now. 
emotions have taken over. You've just got chaos in the streets. Okay, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. Now, verse 30 then. Paul's got two of his guys in the theater. Let's just say there's 30,000 people there. There's chaos. There's people shouting. These guys have been dragged into this place. And Paul, look at what he wants to do, verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Those are politicians. So you've got, you got, you got guys who are part of the Roman proconsul that basically who knew Paul, they liked Paul, and so his friends and some of the political officials said, do not go in there. Paul wants to go. They tell him, don't go. No, there's no good end to this. It's just going to incite the riot more. Right? We're trying to de-escalate the situation, not escalate it. But Paul's guys are in there, so he's feeling this sense of emotion because he wants to get in there. But cooler heads are prevailing. Say, don't go in there, Paul. There's no good to this. There's no good end to the story here. You go run in like this. So, so now you just picture this moment. Okay? The gospel has threatened the idols of the age. Some have repented, but those who haven't repented have resisted because they don't want to hear that what they're living for, how they're making their money, what they're about is wrong. No one wants to hear that. They're not ready to, to leave Artemis. And so now this moves from what I want to call the cash, God threatening the idols, to the chaos, the fact that people don't like it. Okay, so now this thing just gets crazier. Look at verse 32. So we're on our second point here, the chaos. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> Pretty funny, actually. I mean, it's sad. But you got some people shouting one thing, someone else shouting something else. No one has any clue as to why this mob is here. I'm just, here's kind of what I'm envisioning. What does Husky Stadium hold? 24,000 people? Is that pretty close, pretty accurate, something like that? 24, 25? So I'm picturing Husky Stadium filled with people. And like when you go to a football game, sometimes like on one side the cheerleaders go red, and then on the other side people go black, right? Red, black. I'm just picturing on one side of the stadium people are screaming one thing. The other side of the stadium people are screaming another thing. You got two of Paul's companions dragged out to the middle, probably people shouting at them and spitting on them and doing all kinds of stuff. And if you, if you were to walk around the outside of the stadium and go, what's going on? People go, I don't know. We're just shouting. Okay. Ah! Right? Just join in and shout. Right? Like it's crazy. It is mass confusion because all you have is emotion now. Emotion. Just pure emotion going on. So now you get a little opportunist going on here. Okay, verse 33. The confusion starts to grow more. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. And you go, what is that? Who's Alexander? Well, Remember, the Jews had already rejected Paul. So people know that, you know, they're aware that this, this riot is being caused by what Paul's teaching. I think this is what you have here. They're aware of it, and they want to jump in and maybe pile on a little bit. Pile on. That's, that's speculation there, but most people think that's what's going on. They want to make a defense. They want to maybe distance themselves from Paul and, and maybe throw him under the bus. Okay? 
That's what you kind of see here. Jesus is saying, hey, let's get this guy up here. So he's up there. He jumps down to the middle of the field, and he tries to say, hey, can I have your attention, everyone? Can I have your attention? But notice verse 34. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So as soon as the Jewish, the Jewish guy gets up there, they go, hey, he's Jewish. He doesn't worship Artemis. So he became the unifying factor. <laughs> and he unified them to all shout the same thing. Great is Artemis. And for two hours, they shouted this. Could you imagine this? This is like crazy. Now, for a moment, just stop and think, what, what starts this? Paul's preaching in, in a synagogue. They had rejected him. He grabbed some disciples, and he taught in a school of, of philosophy. Okay? He, he's teaching in a, in a Greek school of philosophy, but he's teaching about Jesus seven days a week. People are beginning to re- hear the message of the gospel and repent to such a degree that it, it starts creating a movement of repentance. People are turning away from Artemis, burning all of the worship books of Artemis. They're just, it, it, but you know, this didn't begin with Paul standing in the stadium in front of 20,000 people. It just began with Paul with really a handful of people at first, less than 12. And, it, and he's just faithfully saying, this is, this is Christ. This is the role he should play in your life. Nothing else should have that role. And people are hearing this, and they're following it, and now it has just opened the door. And now the town is unified. They're screaming with one voice, great as Artemis, for two hours. It's amazing what's going on. So let's see what happens. Look at verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted down the crowd, which I don't know how he did that, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, right? See, we all know this is our job to protect this temple. This is our job. And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. There's a meteorite. Remember I told you that there was a meteorite that hit the ground. They believed that the shape of that meteorite was the shape of the goddess. That was in the center of that temple that I showed you the picture of. And so he's saying, we all know that our job is to protect this, to protect the stone. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. So what does he say? Okay, calm down, guys. We know our job. You brought in two guys who didn't really do anything. Right? You just grab these guys. You're, you're acting out of mob rule. You're acting out of emotion. You're trying to punish people for things, and you're causing a riot. Now, what do we know about riots in the Roman Empire? Right? We've talked about this in the past. The key to the Roman government was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They loved peace. If you were seen as somebody who disturbed the peace, they're going to cut your head off. It's over for you. Right? It's how they kept all these countries at bay. No riots. If you riot, we kill you. There's not even a huge trial. It's simple. We bring in soldiers and we kill you. That's it. That's the way they kept control. And so he's saying, okay, guys, here's what's going on. You brought in people that didn't do anything wrong. We know our job. We know what we're doing here. So notice 38. He says, therefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. 
and there are lawyers. Give them some business. They got families, right? That's what he's saying. You got proconsuls, they're here. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. Soldiers are going to come in and kill us since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, he spoke some reason in the situation. Pretty, pretty clear what he did. Got the riot calmed down, got everybody back to their place, tells them, Demetrius, you got a problem, take them to court. Okay, that's what you need to realize. We do not want a riot here. Now, here's what I want you to understand. As we kind of wrap the Ephesian ministry up, Preaching the gospel is preaching two things, really. It is preaching the glory and the preeminence of Christ. It's telling people that he's worth living for, he's worth dying for, he's worth giving your life for. But anything that you are living for and dying for other than Jesus is wrong. That's the second part of the message. We can't preach the one without the other. They both have to be together. Gospel ministry isn't layering Jesus on top of a society. It's identifying the idols. It's like, these are, these are, this is an idol you're living for right here. Now, here's what happens. There's two responses. When you preach Christ, the first response that, that can come is that people can repent. They can say, yes, I don't want to live for that idol anymore. Right? I'm, I'm living for this thing, but it's going to go away. And I know this now, and I don't want to live for this anymore. And they repent and they, they walk away from the idols that they were holding on to and they embrace Jesus. And that is the great response. That's the awesome response. But there's a second response. And the second response is resistance. Because if, if they don't believe, if their hearts are hard, if their eyes are closed, then you're telling them that what they're living for is wrong. That they've got their heart in the wrong place. No one wants to hear that message. And so resistance comes. The threat of Christianity isn't our music, our clothes, our haircuts, our buildings. The threat of Christianity is that we're coming in and saying Jesus is to hold the role of preeminence in your life. And anything that you're living for that isn't Jesus is an idol. It's an idol. If you're holding on to something other than Christ, it's an idol. Anything that you say, I can't live without that. If I can't live, if I don't have that, I, I, I can't live. If that is not Jesus on the other end of that statement, it's an idol. It's an idol. It's an amazing thing. Idols are the things, the, anything that becomes ultimate in our life. We notice in the text that there were three kinds of idols that were identified. A personal idol, a religious idol, a cultural idol. Those idols are still true. Right? We don't have a statue of Artemis, but we have our idols. Right? We have our personal idols. Could be money, could be TV, could be me time, whatever it is. If I don't have me time, I can't live. Right? If I don't have my cup of whatever in the morning, I can't live. And you might say, do, do I really believe that? Some do. Some will pursue their own lust, their own career, their own success. They'll pursue getting married. They'll pursue having children. They'll pursue this or that. And if I don't have that, I'm going to, I can't live. And you stop and say, okay, do you understand? 
All those things are good things. I love a cup of tea in the morning, but I can't live for it. If I live for it, it's an idol. If I just love it and appreciate it, then it's worship. But here's the reality. I want to be careful that the things that are good gifts don't become ultimates. Don't become the ultimate thing. And I'm holding on to something, and I say, God, I can't serve you because of that. I have this personal idol. We have religious idols, too, in our you know, culture. Certain preferences, certain things. If I don't have this, then I can't do that. I can't worship God if I don't have this. I had a religious idol. I'm sure I've got many ones I don't even know about, but I can think of one. I was just thinking in my own life, reflecting on these points here, and I was thinking when I was 21 years old, I was pretty defined about music, what I liked, and I was going to this really good church, really great preaching, but I really didn't like the, the music because it was uh, really old, and and so I would sit in my car during the music time, and I would listen to my music, right? And then uh, I, I knew the pastor would come up a certain time, and then I would come in. One day, one of, the, one of the elders saw me in the car, and he says, what are you doing? I said, ah, you know, I was just worshiping. And he's like, that's an idol for you, man. You're going to break fellowship with the saints over this? Why would you do that? He totally rebuked me. I was just, you know, he's just like, that's an idol, man. You're like, you think that you can't worship God? You can worship God with a stick, two people hitting sticks together, you know? You don't need that. You know, he didn't like that music anyway, so it was easy for him to throw that one under the bus. I was like, you don't need that. He's like, you, you've made this something ahead of love for God and love for others. And it just beat me up. It was like, Whoa. It just radically transformed something inside of me to say that was a religious idol in my life that I, I can't worship God because I have to have this. Well, something good, like the music I liked, became something ultimate. And it transferred from something that I can enjoy and worship to something that actually hindered my worship. It just quick, quick, quick shift. Religious idol. Cultural idols. We have them all around us. These are easy ones to expose. I was thinking about this cultural idol. What is like one cultural idol we have? I think we got many, but I'll give you one. Individualism. Individuals are huge in our culture, right? I was thinking about this. This hit me this week. I was thinking about the fact that, that the, the place that you can see individualism the greatest is at a restaurant. I want you to think about this. We are very individualistic people. We like to do everything our own way. We like it our own way. And so you go to a restaurant, and the restaurant has on the menu glazed chicken with steamed broccoli and rice, right? And so the, the, the waiter or waitress comes over and says, can I help you? And you say, uh, I would like the uh, glazed chicken with the broccoli, steamed bro broccoli and rice. But could I have the glaze on the side? And instead of broccoli, can I have corn? And is there any way to substitute rice? Because I'm really trying to get rid of starches in my life. That's not the menu. If we wanted plain chicken with sauce on the side, corn and fruit, that would have been on the menu. And my question is, if it said plain chicken with sauce on the side, fruit and corn, would you say, is there any way of getting the glaze on the chicken? And could I substitute the corn for the steamed broccoli? And 
I don't really like to mix my sugars and stuff. I'd rather have some starch in there. So we can have rice and stuff. Like, are we just like, in, you know, but it's our culture, right? We can't even follow a menu. And I'm guilty of this, right? I mean, I'm, this is fingers, at, all fingers at me on this. Individualism is such a big part of our culture. And I wonder if Paul were to come today, we don't have Artemis, but we got other things. Would he, how would he challenge us? And how would he teach us to talk to our culture? How would he teach us to say, you know, you could have everything your way in life. There could be no menus, just giant vats of closets full of food, and you walk in and design your meal everywhere you go. We'll have your boss do it exactly the way you want it done. You only get the emails you want to get, and you get to send any email you want to send without consequences, right? And yet, if you had all of that your way, I think Paul would tell our culture, you still won't be happy or satisfied. Because you didn't make the world. God did. And God's the one in control. And it's his planet, not yours. And he's created it for you to enjoy. And he's created it for you to work in it. And he's created it for you to even have some space to create. But he created it for him to be at the center and not you. I wonder if that would be his gospel message. You see, I think preaching the gospel is identifying the, the idols, the personal idols, the religious idols, the cultural idols. This is what I see Paul doing all throughout the Bible, not just here in Ephesus, everywhere. Now, two things I want to say, and then we're done on this. One is this. It's much easier just to tell people about Jesus than it is to address the idols because there's either going to be repentance or resistance, right? And I don't really like resistance, no one likes that. No one wants to address the idols. And yet, there is a reality to that. But I do want to say this, my second thing I want to say, by way of encouragement. This is the only thing that creates change. This is really how change, this is how you change, how I change, how the world changes around us. And I want you to think about this. Two questions that I know you can answer by way of encouragement. First is this. How many people today gathered in Ephesus to worship at the temple of Artemis? Zero. Zero. This thing that was at the center of the world. Gone. Doesn't exist. Paul challenged it. A couple hundred years, the, the, the ministry, the, the people were faithful. Timothy was faithful. John was faithful. The church in Ephesus was faithful. And eventually, a minister by the name of John Chrysostom continued that ministry of preaching the word, and boom, temple ended up being destroyed. That, those idols were gone. But I want you to, here's the second question I want you to think about. How many people have already gathered today on this date in other parts of the world, to worship Jesus. Millions. So even though you might face the mob, we're on the winning side of the equation. And as fearful as that moment will be, the temples to Artemis go, but the worship of Christ stays. Everywhere, throughout generations. Communism couldn't take it down. Fundamentalism couldn't take it down. Extremism doesn't take it. Nothing can take it down. It remains active and strong because Christ is building his church. And so we might pay for it on the front end, 
But on the back end, Christ wins. Christ wins. Let's bow your head with me. I want us just to pray and and just pray and thank God for the, the truth of the gospel, but also pray for courage that we would would lay down the idols in our own life and, and, and preach the whole counsel of God. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the privilege of being able to study this in Ephesians. I thank you for the message. It challenges us, not just studying historical count at a point in time, but it, it challenges us to consider the gospel in all of its fullness and glory. Lord, we have idols. I have idols. I have things that I live for, things that aren't Christ, things that I say, if I don't have this, then I can't serve you. If I don't have this, then I can't live. If I don't have, we can idolize everything from people to pastors to stuff to things to good gifts. So many things we could place as the center of our life. I pray, God, that, that your spirit would reveal those personal idols, the religious idols, cultural idols that own us. And that we would say, I don't want to live for those. I want to live for Christ. I want to be content in him. Lay down the things that I worry about. And then, Lord, I pray for courage. If you open a door, allow us the courage to not only proclaim the glory of Christ, but, but his lordship over all areas of our life. May we be faithful even in the midst of the the pressure that can come back, believing that Artemis is gone, but Christ reigns. These gods go away, but what remains is Jesus and his worship. And Lord, may that comfort our hearts and and allow us to be faithful with this message you've, you've given us to proclaim, a message of life and hope and peace. Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible.org.